And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys had an outstanding long weekend. Uh, hopefully, y'all uh, spent time with family, you know, went outdoors, grilled some burgers, did whatever. Uh, unless you're, you know, of course, in Florida. And uh, hopefully, you got the hell out of there. Uh, this hurricane's looking pretty rough. So, uh, yeah, definitely, if uh, the authorities are telling you to evacuate, please get out of harm's way. Very special show today. It was a great show today. A lot of fun. I was joined by my cousin, my cousin Alan Leonard. Um, I've always wanted to do a podcast with this guy, <laughs> and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Alan is the editor of Fact Check NI. It's a fact-checking website uh, serving the people of Northern Ireland. Um, Alan has lived in Northern Ireland for around 25 years, I believe, um, and he's always been politically active and, and involved over in UK politics, and um, he's a, he does a great job with, with his fact-checking. And uh, yeah, it's... We, Anytime Alan's in town um, from Ireland, we have great conversations. We always talk policy, we always talk politics, and I've always thought, man, we really need to turn some microphones on during one of these chats uh, so the good the good folks back at home can can hear it. And uh, we finally made it happen. Um, so yeah, I, I think we covered a lot of ground. <clears throat> we talked Brexit. We talked the differences between UK and US politics. We talked. Just wait. We covered a lot of ground. I don't even remember all the stuff we talked about. It was a long one. I think it was like an hour and 20 minutes, something like that. So we covered a lot. It's always great talking to my cousin, Alan. And uh, yeah, I think you guys really enjoy it. It was definitely a fun one. Uh, guys, before I get to Alan, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. If you like the show and you want to get involved, please hit us up over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Podcast. You can support us monthly over there, and there's cool incentives if you choose to do so. Uh, if not, you know, whatever. Just share us on social media. Tell, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your family, tell your neighbor, whatever. Help us spread the word. Anyway, uh, without further ado, here's my chat with my cousin, the great Alan Leonard. All right, guys, we're here with Alan Leonard. Alan is the editor of Fact Check Northern Ireland, and he also happens to be my cousin. Uh, who's in town from Belfast, visiting family. I haven't seen him in like four years, and we always end up having great conversations about politics and stuff, so we figured we'd do one with, with the uh, microphones on this time. So thanks for coming over, man. Hey, you're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, you know, I've thought for, for years now that we need to record one of our conversations. I think the audience would always, you know, get a kick out of it. Well, we, hopefully they're as interesting as our actual conversation. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, hopefully we didn't use up all of our good material before <laughs> hitting record. So I, I want to get to Fact Check NI and all that stuff and just the state of the fact checking industry in general uh, in, in the UK and in the United States. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, since you are in Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, mm-hmm. probably the, the, the topic that the audience wants to hear from you the most on is Brexit. Okay, that's the big news for the last four years now, or three years. Is it? Gosh, something like I that. wouldn't know. Oh, yeah, that's right. Every time the radio goes off, they talk about Brexit. I mean, anytime I talk about it, I preface it with, I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. So, Brexit. 
apparently this is happening with a deal or no deal on October 31st. Um, is that going to happen? I, I, I feel like we've heard that before several times. So uh, if there's no deal on Brexit, are you guys leaving the European Union on October 31st? Let's start there. Oh, that's easy. Yes. If so, if there is no deal on 31st of October, then 1st November, the United Kingdom leaves the European Union with no agreement in place and will be treated as what's called a third country as if it was the United States or Canada. All right. So that, that will, because I feel like that, that's, that's been an, said before. Yeah, that's an easy question. Brady. Okay. So Brexit is happening. No, regardless. no. You asked me if, if Brexit happens, what, okay. what, if there's no deal, that's what will happen. The harder question is, is there going to be a no deal? Okay, so I, is there going to be a deal? I, I can't. I don't know. If you you're, had to put a percentage, you're, actually your guess living <laughs> here is as good as mine living in Belfast. So obviously, um, you don't don't answer this if you don't want to. You, I, I, you never need to answer this. Did you vote Remain or leave? Oh, I'm a Remainer. You're a Remainer. Uh, I okay. definitely voted Remain. Mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously, um, you know, let, let's start there. Yeah, sure. Because people and a lot of people in the United States don't understand. They think it's like a right or left kind of issue. Mm. You know, people here, I, I think mm. the majority of Americans believe that, like, you know, remain is a labor party position. Leave is is a Tory position. Mm-hmm. That's not true. I mean, both parties are essentially split down the middle. Can you kind of explain yeah. why people in both parties, the right and the left, want to leave and want to remain? Yeah. OK, no, that's a good place to start. And uh, probably we should start when the um, United Kingdom and Ireland joined the European Union at the same time. Um, it was actually a previous Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who was part of the referendum campaign in the United Kingdom to join uh, the European Union, right. or the EEC, as it was known at the time. And I think for your listeners, they might appreciate that um, one of the motivations of joining uh, the European Union um, was the single market, economic reasons. Um, and so Prime Minister Thatcher saw that uh, advantage at the time. Um, and so she actually campaigned um, for voters to join and vote uh, yes uh, at the at the time. So they did. That was and, the early eighties. Uh, um, no, it was seventies. Was it? Was it late seventies? Okay. Um, and so um, and and so so they did. And then the um, European Union evolved over the years. There's two essential components um, of the of the European Union. Uh, you have the customs union, and that basically says that all of us members of the customs union will ensure that imports coming in from outside the customs union are all charged the same import duties. Um, and then you have the single market, and that basically means that um, for all of us trading stuff inside the um, single market, they can trade freely. There's right. no, no internal taxes. Um, but to do that, um, just like here, you need laws and rules and regulations. And so um, things are standardized and things flow. Um, and so that's how it developed. The controversy would have been throughout the 1980s and 90s. Uh, Jacques Delors and others uh, really um, pro-Europeans within Europe who really wanted to do, develop a, a so-called um, United States of Europe. And I always, I always laugh at this because um, I always remind them of American history and that what a small miracle it was that the United States actually formed in the first place. Right. Um, because as I interpret American history at the time of the War of Independence, was you had a lot of governors of commonwealths. And of course, you had the hotheads in, in Massachusetts and Connecticut and everyone. You know I mean? But um, why would the governor of South Carolina, um, who is very comfortable um, with his commerce and relations internally and, and with the mother parliament, why would he want to revolt? I mean, I, no, I'm fine, thank you very much. 
And so part of the pact that was made among the revolutionaries, um, I'm simplifying here, but right, you right. get my get my gist, is um, is that okay? You join our cause. We break from England. We form our own nation, um, and you will have even more freedoms. We will ensure that no um, central government will impose uh, tyranny upon you as we deem the king to imposing tyranny upon us. Right. So that was the kind of pact understanding, and that to me is why. One of the first things it says in the Constitution is that no rights um, that are explicit for the federal government shall be that of the states. Right. And that that's to me is the is the origins of, of all that. So so think about it. You you and you know, we're talking late eighteenth century here. Um, so you have American independence, and then you do have what's called the Articles of Confederation. Um exp- uh, critically, uh, you know, if you want to critique it, it was kind of a failure, um, kind of fell apart because of the lack of common currency and standards and foreign policy. It was, you know, it didn't, what I learned in history, my American history classes, that wasn't, it didn't quite work. But we tend, Americans, we tend to forget about the Articles of Confederation because we all know what happened after 1789, Bill of Rights, and then uh, slavery, and then the Civil War, uh, you know, uh, and all of that trauma. Um, and then, of course, the, the uh, Native American Indians and the rest of it. So you have, you have, we have our history. We know what it took to create these United States of America, um, with all of its traumas. Right. It took some horrific, horrific compromises. You know, chief among them, slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you know, people that don't understand that that history, they they see the 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 wording in the Declaration and the Constitution, and it, it it's pretty much saying how evil slavery is and the, even the founding fathers that held slaves thomas jefferson chief among them hated slavery right but it was this like grotesque alliance between the, the north and the south because they needed to unite the country if they were going to ever pull this experiment off and that's why it delayed the process of ending slavery another you know 70 years yeah that's one that is that is a sound way of, of looking at it, is that everyone was aware of the problem but like well without you know revolt you know like causing so much upheaval, how are we going to resolve it? Unfortunately, in that case, it took a civil war. But um, the point I'm making about Europe, the United States of Europe, and, and I, you know, whenever they talk about um, creating a United States of Europe, I'm thinking, really? Like, can you learn from your American history? Um, I always, you know, like, how are you going to, it's going to be, would it be, it would be even more difficult because of the the histories, the cultures, the languages—you know—the the, you know—the the histories of, of European states go far back more than ours, um, and even as modern as you you want to be, you still have to reconcile all of the, you know the failures of nation-state building in the past in Europe, which is part of the motivation of the European Union project. But to think that okay, we had two world wars uh, here in Europe. Um, and but somehow we'll transcend that, and we'll have a United States of Europe with a with a single like republic or code. I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you want to see a whole bunch of fascist nationalists danger. R- rise up, then try to create the United States of Europe because it turns out Germans like being German and Italians like being Italian and Indeed. French like being French. Indeed, <laughs> Indeed. and that's the thing. Where in America, I remember um, growing up seeing many more state flags wherever I was. Right. I remember fly, uh, driving, you know, or well, before I was driving, being driven around um, Ohio, Indiana, parts of the Midwest, and I, was, and I would see state flags. Right. I remember houses would have the state flag of Ohio on it. And it was about um, when I got into high school in the early 1980s, showing my age, um, that I noticed less of them and more American flags. Right. So, um, so 
I find Americans still very um, proud of their state rights, but I feel a sense more of a, a kind of a, when I say universal patriotism, American patriotism, that it's less allegiance towards individual states. And the reason I say that is because that's not the case in Europe. Right. You go in Europe, you're going to see an Italian flag, a French flag, a German flag, right. alongside the European flag. But those loyalties to their local state right. are so intense. Right. It almost seems like, obviously, talking about Brexit is easy for me because I don't have any skin in the game and I don't really understand what's going on and it doesn't really matter. Doesn't Well, I mean, global markets affect the whole world. Then yeah, there'll, be a, there'll be a trade deal between be, America <laughs> and, and a... And a, and a departed uk someday right and uh you know obviously it'd be, <laughs> it would be much better if you guys had a deal with europe upon leaving the eu obviously if there is a no deal um uh exit mm-hmm. what exactly does that mean obviously the pound would would take a significant dip you're already seeing it over the last week or so mm-hmm. it's uh going down a little bit um what is that going to look like and also like for for the people that that are Brexiteers, I, I understand. As somebody that does not like governments a whole hell of a lot, as somebody that definitely doesn't like unelected bureaucrats at all, I, I do see problems with the European Union. It's obviously not what you, you said crazy people have proposed, you know, a United States of Europe. It's not something like that. They're not trying to completely erase national sovereignty or anything like that. But it does seem like they are infringing on countries' sovereignty a little bit. You know, it does seem, just from peripherally yeah, like no, I, I you know you're not you're it not, does seem scary as a small government mm-hmm. guy watching the european union yes. d- do what they do it is troubling yes. not that they're going to become fascistic tomorrow but i could see it happening in a hundred years so i can i can put myself in the perspective of people that really want to leave saying that hey look even if there's a economic downturn for a year or six months or a year and a half or whatever and we have to tighten our belts for a year it's worth it to gain back this sovereignty that's been taken by Europe. But like, I, I can put myself in that in yeah. that person's perspective, certainly. I, and I understand that completely, particularly from an American perspective. But from a European perspective, theirs is a bit a little different because they the consensus um, with uh, among most Europeans is that the the uh, just the catastrophe and the violence of the the two world wars. No, I living in in the UK um, and and other Europeans. They they look at the First World War, um, particularly the the British, um, as as a great catastrophe for them because they lost so many so many people. Right. Um, but for me, as an American, my bias is the Second World War because that was when really you know it's the classic good versus evil. I mean, we really saw what happens uh, when uh, a fascistic leader takes over and says, "I have a new world order," and it just completely right. is is just horrible. Um, and so, from a European perspective, they saw, yeah, that was those those wars were absolutely cataclysmic, right? So we're going to make sure that never happens again. And part of that is a consensus among the state leaders to sort of say, I am, say, the, the prime minister um, of Italy, right? But I will go along with this, this economic project um, because we will recover and grow with prosperity by pooling some sovereignty with other European states. Um, and then we'll all um, have complex ways of making sure that the decisions are agreed. Um, and you would say you might see that as not being wholly democratic and representative of the people, mm-hmm. um, but within these European states who don't have our history of direct democracy and you know re- re- um, re- republicanism, um, they would see that as a compromise. So that compromise is working nicely, I would argue, until say you know post Dolores and this where 
the, the argument was was that the bureaucrats, as you define them, would be out of touch with regular people. Right. And and that is a, I would argue, a fair criticism because even the European Parliament, um, it, members of the European Parliament get elected directly mm-hmm. through a, a direct vote. But then the response isn't great. And I think part of that is the conundrum of European politics at the European level is that I get it at the high level in regards to um, pooling sovereignty for, for better rules of, of increasing commerce and prosperity. But when it comes to what we were saying earlier, it was just about um, responsiveness and redress. Right. If you're, if you're a voter in uh, North England and you're thinking, what's good come out of this? I don't feel any richer. I don't feel any benefits out of this. And I can't even petition my MEP. My MEP is like one of 600 odds and only so many of from, from my area. What kind of response am I going to get? So the frustration was building, right. building, building. And so now there's there seems to be a kind of like, oh, well, let's just go back to the way it was before, which scares me just like scares right, you. Right. Thinking, well, wait a minute. We know what it looks like before. So what are we talking about here? And that's what alarms me a little bit just about... Um, the UK's desire to leave. Now, the UK would say, oh, but we're different than the rest of European countries because we have this special relationship with America and we can go it alone and the rest of it. And I'm thinking, well, maybe. There's some There's some truth to that. It's not, you know. It's possible. But I've always said that the, and this makes, I've always said that the, whenever I listen to the BBC or anyone um, in the UK media talk about the, I would say, so-called special relationship with the United States, it just reminds me about, yes, they're harking back to that time in which we cooperated with them to defeat Hitler in Europe. But actually, that was, you know, kind of, for me, the end of that UK imperial regime and the beginning of a, of a, of a new era for, for America and the new in that new order. So to call it so special, I'm thinking, okay, we have a shared history, but actually the futures are, they're, they're different. You know, America is, you know. Well, there's the partnership to bring down communism, too. You know the the UK, mm-hmm. the US, and you know Pope John Paul as well. Like we're we're extremely influential in the fall of the Soviet Union, and it goes beyond World War II, I think. Yes, but it, w- one point that that is very interesting, and, and I definitely think uh, uh, Americans need to understand it is that I, if I I don't I don't know I'm I'm I've never been to the UK before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have a feeling because I am so radical on sovereignty and federalism and individual liberty and, and, and stuff like that. I'm sure I probably would have been a Brexit voter if I were there more than likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and because I, I'm always, I'm never going to want to give up any kind of sovereignty for security. Cause that's just, you know, I believe in the Jeffersonian dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's a oversimplification of, of the European union, obviously, but also my country wasn't my continent wasn't destroyed twice in 35 years so um, it, it's impossible for americans um with our rugged individualism which i believe in and i probably would have been a brexit voter too but we can't really put ourselves in the position of uh, a citizen in europe who had their country destroyed twice in 35 years whose mm-hmm. parents or grandparents lived through that and are still you know mm-hmm. are still dealing with the aftermath of the of the two world wars so there is a difference like we can't really in america put ourselves in that position so like i i sympathize with people that want that that mm. voted remain too like i get mm. it like it's not a it's not ridiculous to me by any stretch of the imagination but you make you make an excellent point there though that you're appreciating um how others living in europe have lived their lives and their histories um 
inter inter you know intergenerational remembrance like remembrance is a huge thing over there about the wars but you've really put your finger on in regards to frustration frustration is real and i could see you voting uh, brexit because because you and probably many of your listeners understand that if you feel that the um, all the government promises and policies have not benefited you and your families, mm -hmm. you're frustrated. Mm -hmm. And so when the e-referendum came around, that was just a golden opportunity to express your frustration. Right. And the, the same, similarly, and you can you can draw some parallels, not not many, but some to the election of Donald Trump. Too. Well, yes, you can. It was, it was a I, lot of absolutely. the similar absolutely. rhetoric, a lot of the, hey, you know globalism whatever the hell that means mm -hmm. because we are a global economy so, so it's no good, you know putting that <laughs> that can of worms back together but you know hey your factory closed because of china or whatever it's just you know whether it's true or not i'm sure in some cases it's true most of the time it's not but you know you see a lot of uh, you know a, a referendum on on people being left behind or at least perceived to have been left behind perception in matters. voting for trump and voting for Brexit. perception matters right mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know let, let's switch gears here too mm -hmm. Another thing that anytime I'm asked by the audience or it's a major new piece of news in Europe that I have to cover, I don't particularly enjoy it because I have to do a lot more research and a lot more reading than I typically would have to <laughs> to try to formulate an opinion, and I'm kind of lazy in that regard. But um, a lot of Americans don't understand that the differences between UK politics or just European politics generally and American politics. Like Probably 70% of my audience would identify as a conservative. Explain how the difference between what that means in the UK and in Europe and what it means here, because people think that, you know, conservatives in Europe are trying to cut taxes and give people back, you know, personal, and it's a, here conservatism is about limiting the size and scope of the federal government that's, and that's cutting right. taxes and, and, and stuff like that. That's not what conservatism is defined as mm -hmm. in the UK. So like what, mm -hmm. explain why, you know, a, a conservative in the UK is not a conservative mm. in the United States. Well, even within the conservative part of the United Kingdom, um, you basically within conservatism in Europe, you'll have two strands. Um, the traditional strand is more of a paternalistic um, kind of ensuring, you know, uh, so morally conservative, uh, there for stability, conserve, um, uh, but with the a responsibility that the role of the state is to ensure the moral conservatism um, and the traditions. This is the way things right. have done. This is the way our economy works. Um, so they, it can come across as paternalistic, um, but the motivations are, are sound. They're good motivations, right? And then the other strand of conservatism is more libertarian about free markets. Mm -hmm. And that's actually radical, actually. A lot of that stems... That free markets, markets yes. is radical in yes. the UK? Yes, yes. There's a long history of, <laughs> of, of mercantilism in Europe. And right. that's where the state kind of designs which industries are going to get the benefits and how it will benefit the population, etc. But free markets uh, is a, was a radical idea. You can thank Scotland for a lot of that, um, you know, in regards to... Wealth of Nations and the rest, though Adam Smith is misunderstood most of the time, you know, much of the time in regards to he didn't believe in complete libertarianism. He wanted um, kind of free markets to generate the wealth so that responsible people can ensure uh, what's best for their society. So not total libertarianism, but he was definitely, you know, the advocate of free markets. So yeah, some people will confuse like classical liberalism and libertarianism. Well, there, there's a lot of similarities, but it's not, yeah. you know, the exact. It's Oh, it's, it, that's a good point, because a lot of times and this might surprise some of your listeners is that in many cases um, in Europe, the liberal parties are actually 
just the libertarian versions of conservatives right. that they don't they feel uncomfortable with some of the paternalistic views of the conservative parties in their own countries. Right. They say, well, we're just going to form a liberal party, and they're they're basically libertarians. Right. It's a difference between like Smith and say like a Mises or Hayek, mm-hmm. somebody yeah, like that. Precisely. Is there any politicians in the UK that would? you know, be close to like my political ideology or like a, a more libertarian leaning conservative the way I define that in American politics. Is there, is there somebody trying to cut the size and scope of the UK federal government and cut everybody's taxes and I would, and leave everybody alone and, and yeah, all that? Are, I, are there leaders like that? I know that Boris Johnson isn't necessarily that. Like he's not a limited government kind of guy. He's a, uh, you know, he's not trying to limit social programs or anything well, like that. Just don't be too hard on yourself, because <laughs> Brady, because um, <laughs> uh, because the the most libertarian um, conservative representative uh, knows that they can't get rid of the National Health Service, right? So one of the most oh yeah, you can't that cat's out of the bag at, yeah. at this point. Well, Thatcher attempted, and other right. and successor prime ministers have attempted to try to privatize or semi-privatize, mm-hmm. and and just a whiff of that will get the um, you know the the the, the unions out right. in March. So right, right. so so like you know politics are the possible. So so even in uh, within the UK, there will be those who would share a lot of your views, but they're constrained by you know, legacies of previous policies. But to be fair, I actually think that a lot of what's happening now within the Conservative Party is there's this desire to try to go back to a kind of Thatcherite uh, free market world um, and to to tackle some of the kind of what they would see as systemic shortcomings, you know, of, of, um, you know, uh, um, of markets. They, They want to reduce regulation and markets and the like of it. So, I was explaining the difference between the two. Basically, that's right up my aisle. I'd get along with these folks. So there are wet, <laughs> wet Tories, which is kind of the the, the phrase for the um, more paternalistic Tories, and then there are dry Tories, um, you know, which that was one. Such odd terminology. Yeah, I like it though. Tories. Well, Tories. Was, Tory was. No, I actually, mean the wet and dry. Yeah, the wet Tory. and the dry. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think I think it was um, derogatory for like wet blanket. You know, oh, gotcha, versus, gotcha. You know, dry right. powder, but. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, I think I think honestly, you probably would. Um, I don't know if you'd go so far as say Nigel Farage um, and uh, the UKIP Party, um, United Kingdom Independence Party, um, because he has been um, a disproportionate force in actually bringing the referendum out. We started this conversation up by the referendum, and See, obviously you, you Nigel Nigel Farage is the one who made it happen. Nigel Farage, he'll come on American, he'll do American press all the time. Um, don't really know why, <laughs> but he does. Kindred spirits. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of that guy. I mean, he's he's obviously a bright guy. He seems like a single issue guy centered around immigration. He he uh, he was opposed uh, to um, the UK going into um, the Europe in the first place. Okay. He, I mean, he likes free markets, but he immediately saw that it would be some of the the bureaucracy, the other stuff that we've spoken about, and he said, "No, I want the free markets without the the political bureaucracy by the European elites." Gotcha, mm. gotcha. So he's maybe like the closest thing to like a. Oh yeah, he's American. He's, he would get fr- friendly time here in the states. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, one one thing that is troubling about UK politics, and not just UK across Europe, is the rise of some socialist candidates and leaders. To Jeremy Corbyn scares the crap out of me in the UK. Scares I, the crap out of a lot of British voters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, this guy, at least from the outside looking in, is a full-on Marxist. 
I mean, he's a full-on communist. He's, you know, he'll buddy up with Hamas and Hezbollah, and, and he appears to be some kind of a terrorist sympathizer. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's too, well, the too second, strong. The, but the second half, I, I, the second half is uh, contentious. I mean, I suppose to explain that because there's also, um, you know, the accusations about his proximity with um, Jerry Adams and the IRA. Um, right. And uh, so, but I think that to try to, I, I, the only thing I, I don't know, Jeremy Corman, um, but the only way to try to explain that upon anyone who supports um, groups like that is a sense of, um, you know, socialist nationalism and uprisings and libertarian, libertarian, liberation, pardon me, liberation movements. In regards to his socialism, yeah, absolutely. He makes no apologies for it. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, the UK does have obviously experience with socialism. I mean, uh, your own father was asking me when he visited me last year what socialism really was like um, in the UK. And I said, well, I said, it's not prevalent, to be honest with you, except the NHS. It's a socialist creation. It's mm-hmm. a monopoly insurance provider. It has its um, negatives, as, as any decision does. But um, a lot of people, the vast, vast majority of Britons love the NHS. So, so it is what it is. Um, so the point I'm making about socialism is that British politics has a history of it. And Jeremy Corbyn is trying to uh, represent that part of the labor movement. The contentious issue within the Labour Party is that the previous Prime Minister, Tony Blair, wanted to kind of wash away the socialism. It wasn't really closer to a social democrat, really, than a socialist. Um, But there's been a backlash against that, and that's epitomized in the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. It's amazing to me that young people, especially, you know, my generation, um, are so warm to socialism, even, even communism. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable seeing people my age and their ignorance of history um, with guys like, you know, Bernie Sanders and, and, you know, who's just a straight, you know, he was a Soviet sympathizer his entire career. Until well, what's the, the word that they the use here? Down. Democratic socialist? Not democratic that, socialism. To me, that infers there's something undemocratic about socialism. Yeah, I mean, democratic socialism. Me, you, and another guy in a room, and me well, and you vote to take all his shit. That's, but to be it, fair, technically, that's democratic. It but. reminds me of the terms, <laughs> I remember, it was in the 80s and 90s, about compassionate conservative. And I'm thinking, well, that infers there's something incompassionate about conservatism. Yeah. So whenever you get these labels, you're thinking, well, are you a socialist or not? <laughs> now, he's a socialist. Uh, it just... I, I know it doesn't matter how how geographically close you are to a, to another country, but being much closer to the you know the former Eastern Bloc than we are here, it would seem like the British would reject socialism. I mean, being at direct opposition mm-hmm. to fascism and communism for so long. Well, well, communi- fighting wars. Well, you remember. Well, do remember there were plenty of of socialists battling communists. Uh, if you look at like Eastern Germany, oh, or, sure. or Germany, things like that. So um, there are there are. See, that's the thing. It reminds me of. Well, um, Marx. Marx did say that the the only goal of socialism is communism, and and the socialists and communists use the terms interchangeably. Yeah. So, well, well, let's you know. look at Chinese communism. Oh, you know, I mean, so let's not even go there, say right. right. But 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 it can be um, just um, an ideology. Um, that's used. And the thing I suppose, you know, that I like about American politics is, is that I'm glad we don't do isms very well. I don't think, you know, like, like Ferris Bueller said, I don't believe in any isms. I mean, <laughs> we, we shouldn't really do isms. Uh, we should just, um, like I say, just remember what, what formed our, our great nation and keep it in mind um, and learn the lessons uh, from the things that weren't so great about it and upwards and onwards. 
Bernie Sanders doesn't scare me very much because he's never going to be elected president of the United States. And even if he is, the Senate would stop him from actually turning us into a socialist state. But Jeremy Corbyn has a legitimate chance of becoming prime minister. Yes, he does. And at least from my perspective, he and, and there's not the same separation of powers. And let's get into that, too, because um, I don't think American listeners, they're going to understand that there's really no separation of powers in, in the, the British government the way there is here. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn actually <laughs> has a chance to... Uh, to become prime minister and there isn't the, the, the checks and balances to stop him from uh, destroying yes. capitalism in the UK. I mean, so that, that's why he's a hell of a lot scarier to me than somebody like Bernie Sanders. Yes. I, I would tend to share that view. It reminds me of when I had the fortunate opportunity of studying abroad um, at St. Catherine's college at Oxford university um, when I was at Boston university and a classmate and I um, were learning about British politics and the British political system and he came to me afterwards and says, oh, Alan, that's great. He says, if you're the prime minister, you can do anything because you control <laughs> both the executive and the legislature. I said, yeah, to my friend. I said, that's great until the wrong person gets right. elected. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's that's the thing. It goes back to our, our founding fathers. Was it, it was, uh, was it Hamilton that the, in the Federalist Papers? If men were angels, we would need no laws and... If angels govern men, we would need no. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it goes back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry mm-hmm. to cut you off. You no, know, no, you're, you're you're right. So that's just the thing about trying to appreciate how um, well you, you have issues of parliamentary democracies um, and also uh, constitutions, because as we know, the United Kingdom does not have a written constitution, uh, so they work on precedents, you know, and traditions, which seems to work them well. Though I was reading an article this morning, I was talking about you know the UK as as a form of feudalism, and I thought, yeah, there's a bit of logic to this. Um, so there's there's just different different states in Europe operate differently, and as we were saying earlier, the idea of the European Union project was say, okay, fine, you can run your state any way you like, but when it comes to uh, trade and movement of goods and services, we're going to play by these rules. And so most Europeans, even with the emergence of of um, uh, the right in Europe. Uh, say, you know, the um, persistence of Marie Le Pen in France, um, and then you have people in Austria and elsewhere, is it is, a, it is a form of backlash. I totally see the form of backlash. And what's interesting to see, um, you know, on the periphery where I live, is to say, okay, where is that going? What is there a tipping point? Um, there, it, as they say, you know, the cliche li- live in interesting times, but um, the UK's expressed its voice and it's getting out. Um, but Europe will live on, and it's still interesting times in Europe in regards to where it, you know it, it evolves over the next five or ten years. Is there a chance with Brexit that um, you know, we could in it's obviously, hopefully you guys get a deal done with Europe before before that would be fantastic. the thirty first. It would just just to alleviate the the uh, the obvious consequences of a of a, a recession, even if it's a brief recession, people still get hurt. The poor get hurt. Yeah, mm-hmm. we know what happens. Um, but is there a chance that um, the U.S. and the U.K. could, in short order, come up with a, a free trade agreement that actually benefits both countries? Um, because, you know, they, there isn't exactly free trade between the EU and the U.S. Like, we're, we are putting tariffs on each other back and forth from time to time. And there's, you know, the, the German auto industry and the American auto industry are constantly going at it. And there's, there's tariffs flying around. But, on, there is a, but there is a formal trade agreement. That's right. the difference. So the answer to your question is, yes, there, it could be free. It could be very beneficial. But in short order... I do not. It's obviously see not going to happen right away. These things take I, time. I usually, I think the Canadian one was negotiated. It took between five and seven years, <laughs> so they can be done. Um, but it, uh, and plus, an, an interesting bit on this is that uh, if there is no trade deal, there's what's called the divorce bill, 
mm-hmm. um, for the UK leaving, and that would happen regardless if there's a deal or, or no deal. Um, and so, um, I try to keep this keep this straight. So the first thing that the UK needed to do when it said, "Hi, we're leaving the European Union," they said, "Okay, we need to um, have a withdrawal agreement." And part of the withdrawal agreement is the divorce bill. So that's all been agreed, right? Um, now, the previous British Prime Minister, Theresa May, couldn't get the withdrawal agreement passed by the House of Commons, by right. the legislature, right? And so we know that we know that story. Um, and so then now we're in the scenario under Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Well, we'll just leave without a deal. That's fine. Except that there's still a divorce bill. And some pundits say, you know, will say, oh, well, we're not paying the 40 million pounds or whatever it is. And like, and then like, okay. But then the next thing that happens is the trade deal. The trade deal happens after you've left, right? right? Well, how do you think those negotiations are going to go in Brussels when Brussels says, "Can you pony up? Can you pony up the forty million before we have this conversation?" Right. And they say, "Oh no, we're not paying you the forty million." Mm. So, so it, it will not be in short order, right? Right. If there's no, if there's no deal, I will. I, I do have to say, just from me watching this, the outside looking in. It's a tough sell. The the, U, the the EU saying, hey, no, we're not actually trying to, you know, remove any of your national sovereignty or anything. We're not trying to control you from Brussels. That's a tough case to make after the UK votes to leave and then the Brussels tries to force them <laughs> at gunpoint to stay. But so nothing says, no, you're free, then... No, but then they're going to treat... Brussels will, start, will then immediately treat the UK as if it was Canada. And so it's a voluntary agreement. You want to trade deal with us? Then let's then let's negotiate. So Brussels have a high hand here, and maybe this is an opportune moment to talk about uh, the backstop. So as you know, I live in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I arrived in Belfast in 1994, right at the times of the ceasefires by both um, the IRA um, as well as some uh, Protestant loyalist uh, paramilitary organizations. Um, and I, in the 25 years that I have lived in Northern Ireland, I have seen an utter transformation of, of, um, you know, peace and prosperity. Um, politics is still crazy as ever, but at least we're not killing each other over it, um, so much. Um, and part- People in the States don't, they view political violence as a thing of the distant past. But there are still dissident Republicans that are killing people. It's not as much as, you know, as, as nearly as bad as it was before. But um, there, there are those Irish Republicans um, who feel frustrated that the peace that they signed up for hasn't brought them results. So they are starting to question the political leadership of Sinn Féin. And so those who disagree with Sinn Féin's political leadership are starting to, you know, they've, they've always been reorganized, but now they're, you know, they've been affecting violence. Um, you know, they've killed a prison officer. Um, they, they've set bombs off in front of police stations and courthouses. This is recent. Oh, yes. Uh, the one in the uh, courthouse in Derry, Londonderry, I think was, oh, let me get this right, was in the spring. Um, so it's fresh. It's to raw. We're still on to a what hunt. ends? What do they want? They well, uh, what they've always wanted. They want a, a unified Ireland um, under uh, a single Irish government, um, and they want any any vestige of British authority to 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 go. They, Northern Ireland would never vote for that, right? 
Correct. Well, I mean, it would well, be an overwhelming. I mean, you saw the the Scottish had a referendum to leave the UK a couple of years ago, and they voted overwhelmingly. To well, they, well, I need to. Well, when you say they wouldn't vote for that, they wouldn't vote for that type of violent overthrow. Um, in regards to Irish unification, um, who knows? They might. At all really. Depends. Well, really? it's, well, it all depends. No, well, I, I had no idea. I didn't know that there was that many Northern Irish that actually were well, interested in, in that. Well, there's, there's, it's, um, there are polls in regards to support for a United Ireland. Um, and part of the 1998 peace accord was that any change in the constitutional position of Northern Ireland would be decided only by the people of Northern Ireland themselves. Right. So that's an idea of assurance that neither London or Dublin are going to try to take over or sell them out. Um, so, and that's, so it's, it's democratic. So then the political game becomes one, if you are an Irish nationalist, of trying to design a situation in which um, it becomes feasible to, argue, you know, to have a united Ireland. If you're a British unionist, then your design is to make things, uh, make life as, as, as amenable to want to maintain the union. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a politics of identity. Right. So there are people who, who are Irish nationalists and they wouldn't care. You know, the British, uni- you know, British unionists couldn't offer them anything that changed their mind and vice versa, right? But there's a very significant kind of, kind of middle section, including, you know, Catholics and Protestants who are thinking, we just want Northern Ireland to work. And right. we worked really hard to get the peace agreement in 1998. We just want to work the agreement. And part of that is free movement of people, both right. between Northern Ireland and Britain, but between Northern Ireland and the South. Because I visited Ireland before the, the ceasefires, and then you had the checkpoints, not only going into shops, but on the border. Right. And this was to kind of you know stop and inspect traffic and the rest of it. Now, with the agreement, those all dissolved away. All the army, you know, many of the army watch posts along the border were physically dismantled and don't exist anymore. Uh, the British army are confined to their barracks, things like this. And the concern is, is well, now that the United Kingdom, of which Northern Ireland is a constitutional integral part of, leaves the European Union, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland in the south, they're remaining in the European Union. Right. So just like Canada, you need, you know, you need to have some way of, of checking for goods. Right. Yeah, and, the, and so th- the issues become, well, how do we ensure a border, which is, as I recall, 499 kilometers long, um, and it, it meanders through lakes and streams and right. roads and fields. Um, how do you ensure that there are no border checkpoints, because they're just immediately become targets for right. some of these oh. dissident Republicans and others? Of course. Um, uh, while the fact is that both states are in, in One's in Europe, one's not out of, out of Europe. So to try to resolve this issue um, during the negotiations, um, Prime Minister Theresa May um, had um, agreed to uh, what's known as the backstop. And it's back, the backstop basically means is that um, we will ensure that after the UK leaves uh, the EU, there'll be a transition period. And during that transition period, then the UK will still abide by customs rules, right? Until you know, until we get the trade deal done, right? right? And it sounds reasonable, except that what's known as hard Brexiteers said this is unacceptable because we voted to leave, and you're saying that for another two years that we still have to do customs union. We want out completely, right? Right, and also and it, it wouldn't be easy or quick to even negotiate the border issue with just between the UK and 
Republic of Ireland. I mean, because that's a whole new... This has become a very hot issue now. There's no infrastructure there. There's no Correct. groundwork yeah, laid. I, yeah, it's, 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 it's... Now, to be fair, I don't quite share the views that this was all caused um, by the um, peace agreement because the, the part of the reason why the, the checks were there were for security. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always been cooperation between, you know, the police north and south in regards to, like, security matters um for example um both the united kingdom and ireland don't belong to a trap common traveler called the schengen agreement so the schengen means that you're french you get in your car and you drive uh into spain you just drive in no one checks you because you're within europe right but 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 britain and ireland are not part of that um and because they're both islands and they have you know they want to check everything and that's great the point of that is that both ireland and uh the uk share information with each other you know if you're a bad guy trying to slip into the uk by flying into dublin you'll be stopped right because the brits want you things like this so to try to address this they agreed the backstop but the backstop could not get passed in the house of commons because some conservatives deemed it to be too soft and now and that has contributed to where we are now the answer remains uh the question remains unanswered we still have this issue now, Britain has said, oh, we're not going to check anything coming up from the south to the north. That's nice. But the problem is, is that the, the Europe, the, the Europeans might say, well, we don't want, you know, right. um, English, Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish farmers smuggling food right. uh, to sell in Europe through through the, the, the southern border. Can Ireland agree can can Ireland can Ireland negotiate their own deal with the UK post Brexit specifically on the Northern Ireland Ireland border regardless of you know outside of Europe outside of Brussels in regards to people yes because there's something called the um, common traveler uh, arrangement CTA and that's always been a fact after Ireland declared independence and achieved independence I always thought one of the wisest things that happened was that the UK did not revoke um, citizen, mutual citizenship, right. meaning that all the Irish people living in Manchester and elsewhere in Britain could stay there um, and um, vice versa. And it also means as part of the 1998 Peace Accord, Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement, um, is that it, it codified that anyone born in Northern Ireland can be Irish, British, or both. Um, and I think that's a cool thing. That's, right. that's really cool. And so no matter what happens, if there's a, um, a deal or no deal by the 31st of October, that dimension won't change. So people will always be able to come and go without, you know, kind of checks. The issue is in regards to trade and commerce. So like case. Ireland can't negotiate a trade deal out. There'll be no separate, correct. Gotcha. No, no member state of the European Union can negotiate its own separate trade deal. You know, it has to be done with agreement of the rest of the EU member states. That really sucks. That makes it horrible for you guys in the UK. That also makes me not like the EU even more. <laughs> that the you know, I, I understand why. Yes. you know, those rules are important. But from but. an Irish point of view, the the Irish are adamant that you know, Southern Irish government are adamant that we're full full blooded members of the European Union. 
And so say you ask me if there's a no-deal Brexit, one of the consequences is that, yeah, the pound will tank again, um, which will excite people who export stuff from the UK because it makes the grids less expensive. But of course, in any advanced economy, you import a lot of stuff and it makes all that stuff more expensive. Right. And so um, while the UK economy will take a hit and it can probably recover because it'll devalue its currency, um, for Ireland and other European countries, it'll hurt them too, um, you know, because of the things that they buy and sell with the UK. So they'll all take a hit. And so part of the UK strategy is like, well, you know, they're trying to use this to negotiate to say, well, why are you inflicting a wound upon yourselves? Right. Um, but um, there are more EU member states than the UK. Right. There's a lot of, we got to change gears because That's, we could we could talk, we could stay on this topic for four hours. Yeah. And uh, we don't want to bore your listeners. I'm, I'm getting more and more confused as we continue <laughs> the conversation. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's it's a lot of interesting but I think stuff. A lot of things. What we I take away is that it is complex. Right. The, the reasons of the evolution of the EU are complex. Uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU are complex. Relationships between the UK and Ireland are complex. And what what Brexit has caused is like, wow, everyone is realizing, wow, this all stuff is really complex. Yes, it is. Yeah, like from a from my perspective, you know, seeing articles every few weeks. Oh, we were supposed to have the vote on Brexit and it didn't happen. It was delayed again. Theresa May is stepping down. Huh? All right, that's weird. Who's this Boris Johnson guy? Yeah, see, it, it makes a little bit more sense now why this process has been so drawn out. and drawn out and, and ridiculous. Yeah, there's a lot of layers there. And, you know, I, and I didn't even think until you brought it up this week, you know, the, the issues between the Northern Ireland, Ireland border. That itself, I mean, I'm sure there's people that work in Northern Ireland and live in Ireland and stuff. And it, oh, there's loads of crossbar trades. I think. Of course. I, think, I mean, Guinness are are um, moving lorries north and south right. several times in the part of the manufacturing process. Oh yeah, real effects. <laughs> so let's talk about um, fact checking a little bit. Sure. Because you are the editor of Fact Check NI. Um, I was on the site just brushing up on it a little bit uh, this morning. Seems like you guys do a really good job. People concert well. Most re- <laughs> most reasonable people in America hate American fact check sites because they all realize how ridiculously partisan they are. Even the Washington Post, who does the you know the Pinocchio's scale that used to be well respected and trusted, is a joke. Uh, guys like Snopes just spent the last two months of their lives fact checking a a parody site, a satire mm-hmm. site called the Babylon Bee, um, which is actually a hilarious site. <laughs> so a lot of these fact checkers, Politifact, is just a uh, they're just a bunch of socialist apologists, and they just like they, their their mission is. Well, just, Brady, it, I would say that's your opinion, and one thing you can't fact you can't check fact check is your, an opinion. You cannot fa- <laughs> don't fact check me because this is an opinion show. <laughs> um, so, obviously, everybody has a political opinion. Every journalist, every fact checker. I mean, everybody's biased. I'm biased. At least I'm, I'm open about my bias, though. So that's mm. you know easier. Um, and I don't even know where I would define you politically. I, I, I you're pretty moderate on a lot of things. Center left, maybe. Is that fair to? I think that's fair. Center left. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, you're not a leftist, obviously, or, you know, and you're not a conservative. So I, yeah. You asked me where you would fit in Europe, uh, Britain. And I'd be sent back to the United States. No, you'd be, <laughs> you'd be that dry Tory. But I, I would probably find a, a home uh, within uh, the Social Democrats or the Liberal Democrats in the UK right. I have an affinity with. But, but, uh, but yeah, but like you said, we're clear about where we're coming from. Right. And in fact checking, it's oh, this is a conundrum I find with journalism. How this idea me, of objectivity? Just the first, like mm. the bit. My biggest question about fact check and I: How are you making sure what happened to Snopes does not happen, happen to you? <laughs> because question. that is the the 
that, that is a and not snubs. I'm not you know you don't have to criticize snubs or names. I'm just using them as an example from my perspective. Well, how do we ensure we're not perceived as being partisan? Right, right. And right. remember, I said partisan uh, perception matters. So, um, so the key thing is transparency. And so we are part of the International Fact Checking Network, uh, which is supported by the Pointer Institute in, in Tampa, Marsh St. Pete. Um, and uh, to get to become like a, a verified fact, to be recognized as a verified fact checking operation instead of a political site that says we're political, you know, we're fact checkers when you're really just a, a, a completely partisan site. You have to follow certain principles, and one of the key ones is transparency. Right, and that's the, and so we are completely transparent in regards to where we got our money from, um, who our staff are, who our board of directors are, um, how we select things, um, kind of our research methodology. Um, and one, I love the question is, well, why should we trust, trust fact check and I? And I said, you shouldn't. You should not. You you know, you should just read our articles. And you should be, you know, have a healthy skepticism of, of everything put down. So we always provide links to every source of information that we have. Go and did we interpret that right or did we get it wrong? If we got it wrong, tell us. We'll correct it. Right. Um, so transparency is, is, is a big thing. Um, so the, with the bit with the, the, the challenge is a sense of objectivity when we know there really is no such true thing as objectivity, um, not to get too philosophical, but the idea is that we all have our biases. You, right. me, every man, woman, child on the street has a bias. Of course. A lot of these where I call it conditioning, we're brought up a certain way, you know, so we're indoctrinated, um, and it can be really difficult to, to go against that. Um, the important thing that the important thing is not the bias. The important thing is just even for you, me, each of us to recognize that we have them. And so it's like, okay, I have what is my bias and what am I doing to try to recognize it when it slips into something I'm writing or saying, like, oh God, I keep saying that. Um and many people don't recognize their own biases. And th and this can include professional journalists, elected politicians, each and every one of us. Another difference I would say we do is is that because we're a nonprofit organization, um, we're not like motivated by clicks. I mean, right. it, it's nice when we get a lot of attention, but our remit's more charitable and education. So we do training in schools and out of schools, local community groups, talking about the things we're talking about right now. It's just right. to bring people's attention. I have a bias. You have a bias. Just be aware of it. You know, bias check basically. And fact check NI is very localized. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. things that matter to the citizens of Northern Ireland. Yes. In in the United States, I mean, look, you pick up every you pick up every local newspaper from a town of fifty thousand people mm -hmm. every morning. The headlines about Trump. Like yeah. journalists do not care about their communities anymore. It is all Washington D.C. Well, all the time. I would counter say it's not that they don't care, but actually the way that the um, journalism industry has evolved, um, particularly with social media and the rest, uh, part uh, part of it is factors that journalists and, and media companies can't control, and that's the way we, we all source our information and news these days. Um, and part of it is, as I would argue, evidenced in the 2016 election, is getting back to where when journalists lose touch with what's happening closer to the ground, because it's fun and, and sexy and exciting to talk about the two candidates running for election. You know, it is. It is. And what journalists wouldn't want to cover it. But then they, I would argue, did it to such an extent that they totally missed the, the undercurrent stories. Right. Um, and... 
So as a fun aside, um, I've managed to call every U.S. presidential election since 1976 when I was, what, nine years old? And that's just because of my upbringing here, that people like you and other family members, I have, I have like a personal family, extended family focus group, and I can usually tell by the, the fervency of, if that's a word, of, of people's opinions here, kind of how intense the, the, the political weather vane is blowing. Wait, so you predicted each... Oh yeah, you, you predicted Trump was going to win, um, except Trump. I was going. I did not. I thought there was a zero percent no, chance. No, I was thought win. there was a high chance, but I didn't stick to my guns because what happened was was when Hillary Clinton withdrew campaigning from Ohio. I think in the September, I thought, what a fatal mistake. You do not. You never give up on the state of Ohio. So I wrote her off, and I said she has no chance of winning Ohio now, uh, because you know because Gore lost Ohio, and right. Gore stayed here right to the end. So I thought, okay, well she's given up on Ohio, and um, and then my friends, some of my my friends said, well, if but if she still wins Pennsylvania and Florida, I'm like, mm. so I rang my brother living in Florida. I said, how are you calling it? And uh, not to out my brother, but um, he he's a happy Republican voter, shall I say? He is and uh, enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, I may add, <laughs> not as enthusiastic as you, Brady. <laughs> I, hey, I'm not. A, I'm an enthusiastic conservative libertarian, okay. not not necessarily a, a enthusiastic well, Republican. That's true. So I'm more about philosophy than party. But. <laughs> um, the heart, a heart to the party. So. Uh, my brother called. He, he said, too close to call. I'm like, wow, really too close to call? Okay, well, then maybe there's half a chance. And I regret that I said, well, Hillary could win. And really, once the results started coming in the middle of the night, I thought, wow, what a wipeout. And it goes back. I, my my explanation is is the, is it's not so much conspiracy theories. It is, it is just the, the, the same reason why uh, the e-referendum in the U.K., um, leave vote won by the slimmest of margins, but still right. won. Right. This, I mean, look, here, just to explain to you, so you're, maybe you're not as mad at me after I vote for Trump again um, this next time, because I hated Trump, man. I, I, think, I think we talked about that, actually. Like, I, I couldn't stand the guy. I voted against him in the Ohio primaries. I mean, I thought he was just horrible. And but Hillary Clinton was so bad, I was like, I, I got to do it. I, I took a shower after I voted for Trump, but I voted for him. And, you know, he's done some bad things. Obviously, the trade he has no understanding of trade policy. He thinks that he doesn't understand what a tariff is, obviously. I, I, just at a basic level, I mean, like I have a I have a trade deficit with my grocery store, and in return I don't have to operate my own farm. You know, I have a – yeah. But anyway, I, so I don't like that stuff. But a lot of the stuff he's done I, I like, and I, I at least uh, – enough that I, I believe he deserves a second term. But the reason why I, I can, I've already endorsed Trump is because of his opposition. Like I would vote, like if I were in the UK, I would vote for a ham sandwich over Jeremy Corbyn. Cause that guy scares the hell out of me. I would vote for, I don't, I mean, I don't know anything about Boris Johnson, but I would be campaigning for Boris. I would be knocking on doors, doing cold calls because of Jeremy Corbyn, not because of Boris Johnson. And that's what the democratic party is embraced most of their leading candidates are just open Marxists. Well, and they, it's like, it's, uh, uh, I believe any party that embraces socialism deserves to lose every election from president down to county dog catcher because socialism well, they caused made, the greatest genocide in the history of the world. They made up, they, Democratic supporters themselves may not define it as, as socialism. Or, I don't give a shit or, what they define it as. I've read well, their policies. But what matters, <laughs> well, what matters are, are people who are going, who are going to vote for them. Right. So if it's not a problem for them, then, that's not a problem. Um, 
but um, yeah, I have I have similar misgivings. I mean, I people ask me how I how I think next year's election is going to go, and I'm like, well, there's no reason why Trump won't win again. And like, how could you say that? I'm like, and well, who's campaigning against him? Who 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 is actually articulated and developed, you know, a compelling set of arguments um, where swing voters who you know frustrated voters who decided, you know what, I'm I'm going for Trump. Um, at the question, I suppose, in my opinion, a key constituency, which I need to learn more about, uh, would be the farming community. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the, the news, like you receiving news um, about Europe and America, the news I receive in Europe about, uh, about America is I have, to, I have to think, okay, I grew up there, um, but I'm not there now. So I need to learn about um, how that constituency feels because remember, uh, you know, Clinton lost Ohio, but she lost all of the Midwest, the mm-hmm. solid red mm-hmm. line from, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, all you the way down. You would think with the, with the Midwest, the farmers specifically, because the farmers are getting hurt worse by yes, Trump's are. tariffs, his Absolutely. trade war with China, than any other group. Yes. But these farmers are middle age. They're conservative socially. The Democratic Party has endorsed government-funded abortion on demand up till the point of birth. I don't see that as a as a um, a pivot point with farmers. I think you were closer talking about them being middle aged and has um, some of the. Um, but let me go through some of the other policies proposed mm-hmm. by the Democrats. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have proposed banning charter schools. They say you must send your child to public school, or we will send guns to your house to remove your children from you. <laughs> like that's not a farmer and his wife and their five kids are not going to vote for that. Some people that's not going to let them choose what school but to how, send to their, their children. But to. everything's devolved. I don't see how even that policy could be implemented. I don't it, know. But they don't know. It would be challenged the Supreme Court overnight. Of course, now and they're not going to be presidents. It doesn't matter. But these I, loon bags get on TV and they say this. And these guys that that understand that Trump's tariffs, or maybe they don't. Some of them probably don't understand but a lot of them do, that the tariffs are hurting their business. And then they look at the Democrats and they're like, you know what I mean? They're normalizing Marxism and all these horrible, horrible policies. Yes. I think it's more, I think it's more, not so much the, say, Marxism, socialism. I think it's, in my view, having moved from the Midwest to the East Coast, it's more of a perceived elitism. That's true. Um, Because I remember the 1988 campaign um, when a candidate Michael Dukakis went to visit farmers in Iowa, yep. and in in the in the name of of sustainability and the rest of it, was advising farmers not to grow so many soybeans because it takes too many uh, proteins out of the soil. Right now, ecologically sound. However, so coming across somewhat patronizing of of a non farmer from Boston coming out to Iowa to tell farmers how they should you know how they should select their crops. Hillary Clinton had a similar moment. In a speech, in a campaign speech, I forget where she was. She was on one of the coasts. But they were talking about fossil fuels, and she looked at the camera laughing with her cackle, that unlikable cackle, you know? So that laugh might have lost her election alone. But she goes, yeah, we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of business. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, bitch, that's going to help you out in Ohio and Pennsylvania, West Virginia. R- really? Like, just the, that's the elitism that you you mentioned. Like, the lack of awareness. It's like, yeah. even if your goal is to transition away from fossil fuels, you don't look at the camera smiling and laughing and saying, hey, we're putting you on the streets. <laughs> like, that is not a way well, to win Pennsylvania. The, she did the classic thing a lot of politicians do and play to the base. You right. Know? Yeah. Whereas, you know, I've, I've, I've told you that I, I'm, I'm center left. 
And I and I do believe in the green economy. I actually think, you know, growing having grown up in a Ohio, you know, land of manufacturing, that there's 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 so much potential. But it does it's up to those who want to realize a green economy to actually articulate it and argue for it. No one's gonna hand it to you. You know, you need to you need to explain how your vision of um, of, of, a, of a green economy is actually going to work and then try to work with those governors. I mean, that's just that's just my hypothesis. Of course. And I mean, yeah, if we're talking about the, the that's another hilarious thing hurting the Democrats right now is their Green New Deal, which would cost something like $40 trillion in 10 years or something. It would you know, double the federal budget or whatever. We're already $22 trillion in debt. We can get to that. Probably, probably won't have time to get that today. But, <laughs> you know, I, I just think, yeah, of course I'm in favor of a green economy, but I just want it to come from the free markets. I want it to be a market-based solution. I think that's the only solution because I don't think you're going to bureaucracy your way out of climate change. Mm. Like I, I take, I'm not some climate change denier or anything. And I, no, no, I'm a huge outdoorsman. I'm a fisherman and hunter. I love being outdoors. But I love, I love. I mean, both. But anyone de- devising a policy will use both um, incentives and disincentives. You know, of so so I think a lot of times the the focus is on the disincentives. You know, polluters pay and. and and in my view, they should. But then the incentive is if you want to change someone's behavior, you have to give them some incentive. Now, sometimes the only incentive you can use is to say is a disincentive that you shall not do that anymore. But I think I think it is possible to, you know, kind of to nudge, um, you know, economies have been nudged all the time. Um, you can it's it's the the, the, is liber- that the most effective well way it, forward it depends on what the true cost is because you know kind of a free market view towards um fossil fuels is is just let let's just burn everything out and we can and we will if nothing changes that's what we will do um but then the question is like okay what is that is that the you know the the wisest thing to do is there a more profitable way I mean, we know for we know we know right that the the big you know oil companies they 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 haven't they are investing billions and billions in patents and all this renewable yes. energy because they are preparing themselves for the next stage. Of course. So, um, so I, if I if I was you know creating a policy about to try to implement the Green Deal, I'm thinking, well, it's already going to happen, so let's just bring it forward. Why burn? Another way I like to put this though is, you know, we um, I still am optimistic in the sense that. You know, we didn't uh, evolve from like the Iron Age because we ran out of iron. Right. Of you course. Know, we right, will right. move on to the next stage, but we are still in a, in my view, in a, in a bad place um, because as scientists, I watched a documentary and a scientist says in regards to energy, there's energy all around us. We get bombarded with energy every day from the sun, the rest of it. We're at level zero. We burn dead plants and burning dead plants you know, is like, we're going to run out of dead plants to burn at some point. And we should probably start thinking about the next level, which is kind of the energy that comes through our atmosphere. And level two right. is the energy that's right at the atmosphere, et cetera. Right. None of the proposals by the Democrats have been coherent at all, though, on this. I mean, there's the the radical, you know, the 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 idiotic wing of the Democrats, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and these, you know, young clowns, you know, getting on TV and saying that the world's going to end in 10 mm-hmm. years unless we give them communism or something. Well, this goes back to our start of the conversation about um, devolution and the power of governors. Right. I, I would love to organize, you know, a consortium of those governors who are implementing energy policies and, you know, to learn how is it working, how are you breaking even, how much is this costing your taxpayers, right. you know, re- return on investment, et cetera. All of the Democrats' proposals, though, also ban nuclear energy, mm-hmm. which makes absolutely... I mean, that's... Th- right now, solar ain't it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd love I'd love to... 
I'd love to survive putting a solar panel on my roof, but that's not going to go too far. And obviously, we should be investing in, um, you know, the technology needed to improve the battery systems to store solar energy and stuff like that and wind energy. Because it's still, we're in the stone age with that stuff, man. Well, you can't you, store well, it for very long. It's inefficient. It's actually dangerous to the environment a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And you obviously can't ban, you can, if you're trying to get away from fossil fuels, which is, this is in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's proposal, is also to ban nuclear power, mm-hmm. which is, that's, ridiculous that's asinine that's clean energy there's never been a problem with it in the united states they point to chernobyl oh, chernobyl was a failure of no chernobyl chernobyl no no there i mean you had three mile island okay yes three mile island that's, and you always had um and with two, modern nuclear technology there hasn't been yeah a well, single issue i'm i'm trying to become like more agnostic on nuclear energy because for me the the thing the great you know the unanswered is what you do with all the waste that lasts for so long um and I have it to Elon Musk will shoot it out in outer space <laughs> and and then until it crashes back on a That's failed true. mission um uh but the French I think uh no I need I'm, I'm the editor of fact check and I but <laughs> I want to say 70 percent but there's a high percentage high percentage of French daily electricity comes from nuclear power mm-hmm. and I have asked about well, well what about the waste and he says man the waste is still a problem but um so while the waste is a problem um, the example is, I don't recall, I don't, don't want to tempt fate here, but I don't recall hear, ever hearing of a major French nuclear disaster because they have, they use the most modern technology to keep yeah. the standards high. That's the only point I'll make. I guarantee the the transition period between, I don't know what percentage of our power comes from fossil fuels, uh, the lion's share of it, both in Europe and in, in the United States. The transition period is going to be nuclear, though. It, it has to be. I, I, I don't... There's a lot of really smart people out there, smarter than you and I, who are working their butts off 50 hours a week on this. But obviously, without nuclear, there's no the technology is still pretty far off mm-hmm. to wean the planet off of uh, fossil fuels. And then, well, I when, could, when you I hear could, when you I hear could, Bernie Sanders and and AOC saying, "Oh, the world's going to end in 10 years if we don't stop the sun monster or whatever their rhetoric is." It's like, are you proposing nuclear war with China and India? Because they, they yeah, meanwhile, their carbon emissions in China are about two and a half times that of the United States and India. It's about two times as much as the United States. Okay, like let's say we went to solar power and we, hell, let's we power our cars off of unicorns and rainbows. Asia is still fifty years behind us. So, like, what do we do about that? So it's these these wild pie in the sky proposals. It's like. All right, so you're proposing destroying the American economy when it won't actually combat climate change at all because China and India are not going to do what we're doing. It doesn't have to destroy it, but it would have to be done, as, as we're ta- discussing, um, in, a, in an intelligent manner. And again, I'm trying to be agnostic about nuclear because in advanced economies who can handle advanced technologies, um, even even when there are, there are accidents like uh, uh, Fukushima, Fukushima, um, that they um, can be managed and controlled, okay? Um, And in advanced economies, um, I can see that, that um, I wouldn't be um, just opposed to nuclear power for the sake of it because um, I suppose if I'm I'm confessing here, it's because when I was in high school, when I was adamantly opposed to nuclear power, this was before the significance of climate change came in. So I... Um, I absolutely believe that humankind has contributed to the warming of the planet uh, with consequences, okay? I don't like the term climate change, but there's undeniable consequences of human activity, right? 
all right, that's it is what it is. So if you're trying to mitigate against that, then although nuclear power has its dangers, right, um, we know what they are and right. we're intelligent enough to, to deal with it. And it can be um, a, a part of a transition. I mean, I like I say, I want to get to level one where right. we're not burning plants, but we're actually using renewable energy. Yeah, I agree with that. So we are... Uh, we're we're actually we're way out of time. We're well over an hour now, but I do want to hit one more thing um, because we, we had a conversation yesterday, and I thought it would be a fun question to ask. Just a uh, a couple of your ridiculous policy proposals. It can be in American politics or UK politics. Things that would probably piss off both sides of the aisle. Um, just if you were emperor for a day, obviously your second move would be to eliminate your own power and give it back to the people. But your first move would be to implement some you know, policy change or something like that. We both, we both, uh, we're talking about this yesterday. At least I endorsed, uh, I've talked about this on the podcast before abolishing the 17th amendment, which instituted the direct election of senators before the early 19, it was 1915, somewhere around there, early 1900s. Um, we passed the 17th amendment that, uh, that, that means the people of each state directly, uh, elect their senators. Before that, the senators were selected by the state legislatures, which meant the senator's job was to go to Washington uh, and, with jealousy, <laughs> defend the rights of their state. Um, and now the Senate is just a hundred idiots trying to run for president. Every senator wakes up, looks at their look themselves in the mirror, and sees the next president of the United States. And I don't think that's beneficial for anybody. So my, the first thing I would do if I were king for a day would be abolish the Seventeenth uh, Amendment. What, what do you got? Some pie in the sky. Something that probably nobody agrees with. Well, living in Northern Ireland, um, probably the pie in the sky policy I'd love to implement if I was emperor of the day was uh, would be the separation of church and state. <laughs> um, I'm sure the audience is confused that there is no separation of church and state. Yes, because um, the the Irish Constitution in the South, um, they when they wrote their constitution, they they modeled the, the from the American Constitution. And it had that there shall be, you know, freedom of religion and separation of church and state, comma, whilst recognizing the special position of the Catholic Church. <laughs> I thought, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. So they repealed that that uh, dependent clause some decades later. Um, but in the United Kingdom, which is really curious, there's, you know, I don't take this too seriously, but um, strictly, strictly speaking, uh, the United Kingdom is a theocracy right. because the Queen of England, um, a monarch, is the head of the Church of England. And strictly, strictly speaking, um, although Parliament is sovereign, um, the government of the United Kingdom, the executive branch, um, is basically charged by the Queen to organize a, a uh, Privy Council that reports to her. So whenever, <laughs> Brady, you're listening and you hear this like, oh, the Prime Minister's gone off to see the Queen this right. week, you're thinking, why? She I was, always chuckle. Yeah, like, yeah. What's that about? Because strictly, strictly speaking, in Britain's unwritten constitution, that's the that's the uh, practice. Right. That's so the, Boris Johnson the wins the election and he is... Yes, he goes uh, to ask permission of yes. the queen to form a new government. He visits right. the queen, and the queen <laughs> says, "I would like you to form a government." Yes, ma'am, I shall, <laughs> and that's how it works. So, but in practice, of course, there's loads of legislation to prevent uh, discrimination against religion. My issue in Northern Ireland might as Ireland, well make it official, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, ooh, now I see that would require a written constitution. <sighs> I'm a fan of ooh, those. Yeah. <laughs> so, but in, in Northern Ireland, this matters, of course, because of of, of uh, religion identity, and um, your your listeners may not be aware that uh, there are five school systems in Northern Ireland. Um, there's one that is run by the Catholic Church. 
there's one that's run by uh, the state, um, and that's seen to be Protestant because, uh, you know, there'll be portraits of the queen and all that kind of stuff. Um, there is a grammar school system, which basically is like um, college prep, uh, but you start that at the age of 12. So when you're 11 years old, you take these tests and mm -hmm. they determine whether you're going to go to college or not, more or less. Um, and then you have, um, you have an Irish language sector, which um, uh, is new. Um, and then you also have an integrated education sector. Now, the interesting thing about the integrated education sector um, is that it basically is a charter school. It was completely established by parents um, in the 1980s and um, with no support from government, except that, you know, you're not breaking the law. And it has struggled to get, get um, government support, even though the law says that will encourage integrated education. So it's very complex. I don't have a debate on integrated education, but the point I'm making is that there are five school systems, all taxpayer funded, um, inefficient use of, of resources. Um, everyone, there are always, there's constant polls that show huge support, um, you know, 70, 89% support for integrated education, but yet we can't make it happen. Um, now, I want to go even farther, and I would like to have just a secular school system. But when I mention that, they say, oh, Alan, <laughs> that's far. There are no secular schools in Northern Ireland. Wow. Um, so I have to accept that, and my compromise is, okay, well, at least if we're going to have religious education in schools, which is part of the school curriculum, I would prefer to have it in an integrated environment so that all pupils are learning both sides of the story. So what what are, you know, Jews, Muslims, atheists, do, what do they do? Where do those parents send their so kids? So um, they're a relatively small part of the population, but we do have, you know, we do have pockets right. of, of, of um, new arrivals and uh, some minorities, Chinese being the large, largest right. one. Um, and for them, um, they're, so most of them would go, it's, well, actually, I, I don't know for, for certain, but most of them would end up going either to the state system or the grammar system if they're going to university. And they so are there's no like religious exemption. They can have their own private school or anything like that. I have to get back to you on that. But my, my understanding is that they, they do. They're all required to take religious education. Now, religious education is pretty much um, uh, Old Testament, New Testament. Yeah. Um, and it is presented in a way that it's, you know, just kind of like learning another subject. It's not it's not theocratic. It's not catechism or anything like that. But but it's still a requirement. And I remember looking at the papers shrieking because I'm such an advocate of the British right, right. state believing like we're talking about America being a land of, of immigrants and people coming from all different types of, of faiths, um, Judeo-Christian, but, but our founding fathers wisely, because many of them were being persecuted in their own countries, right. wisely realizing we, we need to make this truly free for everyone so everyone can practice their own religion as they see fit so long as they're not infringing on the rights of others. Totally agree, but sometimes I feel that where I live in Northern Ireland, the way that certain public policies and politics goes, is sort of thinking, yeah, that's great for your group, but what about people who aren't in your group? And I just, I'm very uncomfortable with that. England is a bit older than the United States, too, and people tend to be set in their ways. Well, no, I'm, been sorry. For I'm speaking more about Northern Ireland, oh, okay. specifically. Gotcha. And England, England and, and Ireland have become very secular. It's been shocking to see how secular Ireland has become right. in the past 30 years that I've known it. Yeah, it's interesting that Northern Ireland is more religious and more conservative than the Republic of Ireland. Yes, it is. Like you wouldn't think that. You'd think, yeah. oh, well, 
you know they originally were the radicals right and after the 1798 uprising which failed for the radical presbyterians many of them came over here and supported um thomas jefferson and others right 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 so that's where the radicalism you know kind of individualism comes from there you but go. they were on the losing side <laughs> in ireland Gotcha. Well, we are way over time, so I got to I got to wrap this up. Uh, but this is awesome, man. We got to do this again. It's been great. Yeah, and we'll do it again over Skype too, even if uh, you know you can't make it back. But and hopefully, uh, you know, I see you in the next four years. Hopefully, it doesn't take this long again. Or I or I see you in Ireland, cousin. Absolutely. Yeah, working on going there next year. So, Alan, I love you. I love you, cousin. This is great. Um, yeah, that's all I got for today, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Um.